It's getting chilly outside, but today we're talking about the boys of summer. On today's episode, we're diving into the 1919 Black Sox scandal because some new legal documents have just been unearthed and they show what happened when Shoeless Joe Jackson actually tried to say it ain't so. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So this could be a somewhat painful winter for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Having just lost the World Series, they'll have to spend these next few months thinking about how a title was so close but fell out of their grasp. However, as difficult as that may be, that's nothing compared to what happened to the team that lost the series in 1919, the Chicago White Sox. Almost immediately after the final pitch, suspicions emerged that gamblers had paid several White Sox players to purposely lose an affair that later became known as the Black Sox scandal. Since this happened over a century ago, when most people think about the scandal, they think about the 1988 movie Eight Men Out, which portrayed the ballplayers as underpaid victims who unwittingly fell into the scheme and then became fall men afterward. The true story of the team they call the Black Sox and the scandal that broke the heart of a nation. For example, in this clip, the team's star player, Shoeless Joe Jackson, is convinced to sign a document confessing his involvement in the scheme, a document he couldn't actually read because Jackson was very famously illiterate. I gotta stay out of trouble. Well, they don't want you in jail. They want you to be a witness. You just sign right there. My wife usually... You got a sign to be a witness, Joe. Everybody does. Eddie signed it. Lefty. Then, as he's leaving the courthouse and walks past a throng of reporters, Jackson is confronted by a young baseball fan. Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Jackson and his teammates were ultimately acquitted of criminal charges, but then subsequently banned from Major League Baseball for life. The movie ends with Shoeless Joe playing in a middling semi-pro league under a fake name. It's heartbreaking stuff, but as we're going to learn today, it may not actually be true, or at least the whole truth. Because Jackson's involvement with the judicial system didn't end with the acquittal, a few years later he sued his former team, the Chicago White Sox, arguing they had to pay out his remaining contract even though he'd been banned from baseball and couldn't play. But this lawsuit could not have gone worse for Shoeless Joe, as he blatantly contradicted his earlier statements, and even though he was the plaintiff, ultimately got himself convicted of perjury. The details of this century-old civil trial were always a little fuzzy, until now. Two baseball historians just unearthed the full transcript of the Jackson v. White Sox trial, and it portrays the tragic outfielder in a much less flattering light than the Hollywood version. Those two, Jacob Pomrenke with the Society of American Baseball Research and David Fletcher, an amateur historian from Illinois, have published a book that features the full trial transcript in a completely unabridged format. I asked them what the transcript shows, why it was lost for so long, and about why the Black Sox scandal still matters more than 100 years later. Fletcher started off by talking about what incited this whole dispute, the contract that then-White Sox owner Charles Comiskey perhaps unwisely signed with Jackson just as the Black Sox scandal was ramping up. Yeah, the heart of the, this lawsuit is the 1920 three-year deal that Joe Jackson signed uh, in February of 1920. And they were, you know, 
ready to win the pennant again, but the, there was a lot of belief that the team was still going to influence the gamblers and fix games in the 1920 season. So meanwhile, the, the, the gig is up when there's an investigation of a Chicago Cubs game, and that ends up convening a grand jury. And it was during the grand jury where more and more stuff comes out in September of 1920. I want to bring Jacob in here because I, this is a, a really crucial point uh, in the story. Uh, the grand jury and the criminal trial that ensues, it sounds like that's where one piece of this puzzle is revealed. Can you talk a little bit about what was revealed or what was discussed in the grand jury? Yeah, so the 1920 grand jury was the first uh, segment of a very long legal saga. Um, and the grand jury was originally called to investigate gambling and baseball, not just the 1919 World Series, because gambling and baseball was pretty rampant uh, in that era. And by the end of September uh, 1920, Eddie Seacott and Shoeless Joe Jackson and Lefty Williams, uh, three of the White Sox players, basically uh, went into the grand jury. They were possibly coerced uh, by some of the White Sox uh, corporate counsel to go in and uh, testify and com basically confess their involvement in the fixing of the 1919 World Series. But then let's fast forward to 1924. And Joe Jackson is now not the defendant, but he's the plaintiff here. He's suing Comiskey. Why did Jackson believe that he could beat Comiskey in court and win back his, win his back pay? Well, you know, this was basically almost a desperation move because Shoeless Joe Jackson had no other legal recourse, really. You know, there was no players union at this time. Um, he was represented by uh, Ray Cannon, a uh, firebrand of a lawyer. Um, he was possibly, you know, the best uh, trial lawyer um, of his generation, went on to a career as a congressman uh, from Wisconsin. But he represented multiple Black Sox players in their in their fight to get some of their back pay from from these contracts that they had signed. Ray Cannon is a very fascinating character. Uh, as Jacob said, he was uh, a celebrity lawyer of his time. You know, he took a took a long shot on this case and he had to go to trial. They tried to sell it before the the trial went for a couple thousand bucks. Well, let's let's get into that, because, I mean, you know. I can't imagine this trial uh, could have gone worse for Joe Jackson. Um, I guess it could have gone worse in that he could have lost. He didn't lose. He won. He won an award from the jury, but that didn't last very long. Can you talk about why things went so south for Joe Jackson in this trial? So Joe Jackson was uh, confronted in 1924. He was confronted with his old grand jury testimony in 1920. And so he was on the stand under oath, um, and basically his old testimony was read right back into the record. And his answers in 1924, unfortunately, um, his, his story changed. Uh, the version of you know how he was involved in the Black Sox scandal, uh, that story changed very dramatically um, by 1924. So we're all on the same page. So in the, in the grand jury, he said, or he essentially admitted, yes, I did uh, fix the World Series. And then it sounds like in this civil trial, he said the opposite. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. In 1920, uh, he basically admitted, you know, I, I was part of the conspiracy. I threw the World Series. I definitely took the money. And then in 1924, he basically said, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't involved at all. And most importantly, he said, uh, I did not answer those questions that way uh, in 1920 while under oath uh, for the Chicago grand jury. And so this was what led to a uh, perjury charge by the judge, uh, John Gregory, 
who said, you know, basically you are lying in one testimony or the other. I don't care which one it is, but uh, he basically charged him with perjury and uh, threw him in jail and uh, essentially set aside the, the verdict of, you know, winning his back pay. That's pretty remarkable that you start off a, a civil lawsuit as a plaintiff and then you wind up winning the lawsuit, but the judge not only takes away the award, but then also th- throws you in jail. I would agree. I mean, uh, the nice thing about the the transcript that Jacob and I put together, it's a very dramatic story and it has that, you know, dramatic ending. You know, the main character gets thrown into to the uh, Huskow. Really briefly, do we know why Jackson changed his story? Or is that something that, that Jackson took with him to the grave? Uh, you know, this was part of a trend with a lot of the, the ballplayers that were involved in the 1919 World Series, you know, recanting and saying, oh, I didn't know anything about this. Um, and so Joe was part of this. You know, he uh, immediately in his grand jury testimony said, yeah, I did it. I was part of it. Um, you know, I was promised $20,000 and I only received $5,000 from the gamblers. That was part of his 1920 grand jury testimony. And then years later, he said, oh, I didn't know anything. I didn't get any money. I didn't, you know. One comment about Joe Jackson getting the money is that's what's really cool about this transcript. It actually goes into having his wife, who was deposed, talk about when she saw him get the envelope from Lefty Williams, uh, which he denied getting in his testimony and also talked about what they spent the money on. Uh, basically, the $5,000 that Jackson got, which was a huge sum of money at that time, was paid for his little sister's hospital bills. And it talks about that in, in the transcript. And they even bring in the banker from the uh, bank who had the ledger of the cash being brought in. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, when you have the wife of the, of the plaintiff, you know, you know, giving the goods on her husband. Mm. So let's fast forward now many, many decades, uh, which is we're going to do a big fast forward. Um, the transcript of this uh, civil trial seems like it wasn't really uh, preserved very well, to put it mildly. It, it was lost, I guess. And it was only found in bits and pieces here and there over the years. And it sounds like you guys are finally publishing the full version of the transcript for the first time. How did the, the transcript get lost and how did it get found? Well, the transcript was stored in all the exhibits for the for the trial in the courthouse. And, and so they were doing a purge of their files in the late 1950s. And one of the clerks there contacted Ray Cannon's son, do you want this material? And uh, of course he wanted the material. And so it was just basically, it was in a box. And we have a picture of the actual box in the book that I took with his grandson, Tom Cannon. And not only does it have the transcript, it has all the exhibits. So it's basically the Cannon family got it back. And so in 2003, when I was doing some initial work on the Black Sox uh, scandal, we got permission to look at the, tr- at the box of Trova documents, exhibits, and the transcript. And so that was the first time we had access to it. Last year, in, in uh, 2022, Jacob was a moderator for a historic trials conference the Illinois Supreme Court was putting on. And had he spoke at the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, also in Chicago. And I, and I just saw Jacob. We've known each other for a long time. And I said, hey, it's time. We've got to get this out in the public domain. 100th year anniversary of the trials coming up. It's an important document. And ever since then, we've taken off and, and, and we're very proud of what we've put together. Uh, Jacob, I want to turn to you. Um, what are some of the things in this transcript that you're publishing that will shed new light on the Black Sox scandal and make the public think about it in a different way? 
Well, I think the biggest thing here is, you know, being able to read Shoeless Joe's testimony in his own words and also Charles Comiskey's testimony, um, you know, hearing from the owner of the of the White Sox about the scandal, about what he knew, um, about what he was investigating, the detectives he hired. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating. You can't even imagine this type of trial happening today with a star baseball player suing his former team and it actually going to trial. And there's no way any of this would you know, go into discovery, no way that anybody would be put under oath and, and have to answer questions. Um, but Shoeless Joe had to answer questions, had to be confronted with his own testimony. Charles Comiskey had to be cross-examined by Ray Cannon, the plaintiff's lawyer. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating to see this all go down um, and to see you know, how it played out. Okay, finally, uh, let's now talk about the present day and about why this is still relevant today. Um, you know, because I could see people who are not sports fans or who are not baseball fans saying, okay, that was interesting, but it happened 100 years ago. You know, why is this still relevant today? And I specifically want to bring up something, Jacob, that you wrote in the afterword, which is that it seems like a matter, you said it seems almost like a matter of, of when, not if there will be another sports gambling scandal, given that sports gambling is now legal after the, Supreme Court ruling in 2018. Do you, Jacob, think that if and I guess when that scandal happens, that whatever sports league it happens in will handle it better than Major League Baseball handled Joe Jackson? Or do you think they'll make the same mistakes? Well, I don't think there's any evidence that sports leagues will handle this well. Um, you know, the, the NBA had a scandal in 2008 with a referee involved with sports betting. You know, I, I definitely think that something like that is is probably on the horizon. Um, whether it's a referee, whether it's you know somebody on the coaching staff, the training staff, a video replay coordinator, there's a lot of people um, you know who have some influence on the game. Um, you know who who can be enticed, and and the money is so large at this point uh, with sports betting that uh, it, it is inevitable. I mean, sports around the world are facing this problem uh, with game fixing, and especially with spot fixing. It's it's not about you know the wins or losses. It's about you know a pitch that's thrown in the fourth inning. You know, and, and if that can be reversed. Uh, one way or the other, a lot of money can change hands. And so that's that's what you're seeing a lot in the 21st century. So I don't think it's entirely comparable to the Black Sox scandal. I don't think um, a scandal like that can happen exactly the same way today. Um, because, you know, how can you bribe a Max Scherzer or a Clayton Kershaw? They're making over $30 million a year. But there are plenty of people involved uh, in the influence of what happens on the field um, who can be influenced, including officials. Yeah. Uh, David, I want to give you the last word before we wrap up. Um, why is the Black Sox scandal relevant today? Why why is it not just a sort of historical curiosity that's made some great, if somewhat inaccurate, movies? Uh, why does it still matter? Well, it still matters because I think it's the American Greek tragedy uh, with all the various characters of you know baseball at that time was you know undisputed national pastime and. It was no longer innocent. And so this is sort of the loss of the innocence. We come back from World War One, uh, the Roaring Twenties start, you got the Black Sox scandal, you got you know, prohibition starting and you know, depression comes. And it's just the period of time, I think that resonates and that it just basically showed that our heroes have clay feet. And I think that they you know, can be approached and they can uh, lose their scruples about the situation. So. And I think it's just a fascinating story because it never it never stops to amaze me that we still find out new pieces of information even in 2023. And so it's a it's it's it maybe a, a cold case, but it's not a closed case. And so the pieces keep unraveling. 
That was David Fletcher, a physician in Champaign, Illinois, and amateur baseball historian, and Jacob Pomranke, director of editorial content with the Society for American Baseball Research, or SABRE. Their new book is called Joe Jackson Plaintiff versus Chicago American League Baseball Club Defendant, the Never-Before-Seen Trial Transcript. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.